service. What is up, listeners? Welcome back to another episode of the Full Service Podcast. I am Tank Smith, your host. Today is episode 73. Thanks for being here. Shout out to my guest from last week, Amori Bordeaux. Amori, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. That was a lot of fun. If you have not yet, check out last week's episode. Make sure you are following Amori. She is on Twitter, on Instagram, at Amori B. That is at A-M-O-R-I-B-E-E. I have links to both her Twitter and Instagram in the show notes from last week. Hit those show notes. Show her some love. As always, you can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, at Full Service Pod. I am at Tank Funkadelic. If you want to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash fullservicepod. You'll be able to hear interviews, episodes you cannot hear anywhere else. We have at least one Patreon-exclusive episode per month. If you want to check it out, patreon.com slash fullservicepod. If you enjoy the show, make sure you are subscribed on whatever platform you're listening to us on. We recently joined Amazon Music, Deezer, and Radio Public. So if you're coming to us from one of those three new places, welcome. Thanks for being here. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. You'll be alerted as soon as those new episodes drop every single Tuesday. I feel like I don't say this enough, but if you want to be on the podcast, if you want to hear anything talked about, if you just want to write in, let us know how you're doing. Send us an email, fullservicepod at gmail.com. Today, episode 73, ooh boy, got a solo episode for you today. I feel like it's been like maybe like a little over a month since my last solo, so I was like, hey, I gotta talk to the people. I have a new review I'm going to read. I'm going to look back at Pornhub and the Visa MasterCard decision that happened last month. Going to look at some new sex work decrim proposals that have been put forth by a few people in the last few weeks, as well as a sex work decrim bill that was proposed in New York. And look back at the life of Margot St. James, the sex worker, sex worker activist that passed away in January at the age of 83. I found an interview she did when I was doing research for this episode from 1985, where she's literally saying some of the things, same things that people are saying today, fighting for the decrim of sex work, ending the stigma around sex work. So, so good. Such a good interview. Um, So at the end of this episode, I will play that interview. It's like 21 minutes, but uh, I think y'all definitely enjoy it. But first, I have a new review to read. Oh, boy. (laughs) I say this every time. If you write a review, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, I will read it. It doesn't even have to be a good one. It could be a terrible one. But as long as it has the five stars, I'm good. I'll read anything. (laughs) But our newest review left on the 25th of January from For You, For Now, entitled So Insightful. I've always been fascinated with the lifestyle and glad someone is finally talking about sex work in a way that's insightful and genuine. Five out of five, five stars for you for now. I appreciate that. That definitely reviews help so much for visibility for the show. So if you leave us a review, I fuck, I appreciate it. Hit me up and I will send you a sticker and a magnet. That's how much I love you. Uh, <laughs> but no, I really do appreciate that. Last month, I did an episode where I talked about a recent New York Times article that was written in December and the subsequent uh, Visa and MasterCard dropping Pornhub from the platform and users basically no longer allowed to use Visa or MasterCard on Pornhub. And 
pretty much anybody who was selling content on Pornhub through Model Hub, which is basically the Pornhub model program, you are not allowed to purchase any content from those creators anymore through Pornhub, like literally at all. So if you go to Pornhub, you find somebody, you find a verified page, they're selling videos, you cannot buy those through Pornhub. A lot of people have moved over to mini vids, clips for sale, or other like clip websites where you're able to sell content. But as of right now, you can still, as of February 1st, you can still not buy content on Pornhub. There was a hearing held today in Canada's House of Commons. The Committee on Access to Information, Privacy, and Ethics held concerning the allegations made against Pornhub in Nikolov Kristof's New York Times article that happened last month. He basically alleged that Pornhub's basically not doing enough to police the content that was on their website after there's been like underage videos of underage people basically uploaded to Pornhub. And in response to that, that is when Visa and MasterCard uh, dropped Pornhub basically from drop Pornhub as a client. And since MindGeek is actually headquartered in Luxembourg, but a lot of their operations run out of Montreal, Canada is looking at this as well to see what they can do to potentially take actions against Pornhub. So this is an ongoing issue. We will see what happens in the next few months uh, with Pornhub as the fucking biggest, you know, basically porn website in the entire world. So uh, we'll see. I will let y'all know what's, what's happening. I will keep my... Ear to the grind. Is that ear to the grind? That's not right. Uh, <laughs> but I will keep you all updated for sure. In other news, on January 14th, the newly elected prosecutor for Washtenaw County, Michigan, it's a county basically one over from Detroit where Ann Arbor is, says his office will no longer prosecute individuals engaged in consensual sex work focusing instead on human trafficking, sexual assault, and sexual exploitation of children. He sent out a directive on January 14th that reads, The Washtenaw County Prosecutor's Office is well aware that sex work carries an increased risk for violence, human trafficking, and coercion. Data and experience, however, have shown that criminalizing sex work does little to alleviate those harms. Indeed, as outlined below, the criminalization of sex work actually increases the risk of sex adjacent harm. Accordingly, the Washtenaw County Prosecutor's Office will henceforth decline to bring charges related to consensual sex work per se. The Prosecutor's Office, however, will continue to charge sex work adjacent crimes, including human trafficking, violence, and offenses involving children that directly harm county residents. I actually, so I did an interview with Parker Westwood, a Detroit-based sex worker that should be on in a couple weeks. She hosts uh, Sex Worker's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, Sexy Galaxy Pod on Twitter. Go give it a follow. But uh, I spoke with her actually about this when I interviewed her a couple weeks ago because um, she is in Detroit, one county over from Washtenaw County. So I wanted to hear what she thought about it. So when her episode drops in a couple weeks, you will be able to we'll talk about it some more. It's a good time. So that happened on January 14th. A few days later, a couple weeks later, January 27th, Eliza Orleans, a candidate for district attorney in Manhattan, unveiled her comprehensive policy for full decriminalization as sex work as well. If that name, Eliza Orland, sounds familiar, Mia Lee, a couple episodes ago, actually mentioned her and her policy on full decrim of sex work in Manhattan. 
You can find the full platform on Eliza's website, elizaorleans.com slash policies slash sex work decriminalization. But the main bullet points are, as district attorney, I will take the following steps to advocate for sex workers. My office will never prosecute criminal charges based solely on consensual exchange of sex for money or anything of value or solicitation of such an exchange. My office will prosecute cases in which sexual assault or violence arises from an instance of consensual sex work. Sex workers who experience violence in the course of their work can expect the full protection of the law from my office. My office will create a mandatory curriculum for all prosecutors and other employees who interact with sex workers to proactively fight the stigma that sex workers continue to face on a daily basis. My office will presumptively consent to any application for expungement in cases where charges arose solely from consensual sex work. I will advocate for full decriminalization in New York State. I will also advocate for modification of the Rape Shield Law to make previous charges related to consensual sex work inadmissible. I will advocate for the full repeal of Penal Law 240.37, also known as the Walking While Trans Ban. Hopefully this repeal will soon pass the legislature, but if it does not, I will strongly advocate for repealing it as soon as possible. My office will never allow this law to be used as a pretext for arrest, even when the ban is repealed. I will continue to file charges against human traffickers and to actively combat human trafficking in all forms. I will advocate to disband vice squads and reallocate their budget to sex worker peer-led services. There's a lot more to it than that, but those are just the bullet points. But you can find the whole policy on her website, elizaorleans.com, and I will also link uh, her website in the show notes so you can check it out as well. Also, in Brooklyn, District Attorney Eric Gonzalez is dismissing more than a 1,000 open cases related to prostitution and loitering. This news is part of a formal announcement that Gonzalez's offices now plans to decline to prosecute prostitution and loitering. Gonzalez says that his office has been rolling out a program to dismiss all prostitution cases over the last year, along with arrests under the loitering statute, which he has declined to prosecute since 2019. Gonzalez says his office has declined to prosecute or dismissed all such cases since the end of last year. The current way of handling sex workers is dangerous. It drives them underground. It doesn't keep us safe. And it's not really getting to the issue of trafficking, says Gonzalez. I expect I'll be criticized by a lot of conservative people, but I think this is the right thing to do, and I think that will actually keep people safer. So we'll see. This is uh, two notable things happening in Washtenaw County, as well as Brooklyn. Eliza Orland's also pushing for full decriminalization of sex work. So we'll see if this continues to uh spread hopefully it does hopefully this is a uh, kind of like a little spark you know and more people take and see what uh the effect that you know this policy has and uh implements that change other places that's how that's that's how it happens it's like one place does something and then another place another city sees it, it's like oh that's working out well for them let's fucking adopt this and then before you know it we have decrim in lots of different places but yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Ongoing story. 
And another story from New York, actually. I feel like this this episode is just like super New York heavy. So on the 25th of January, last Monday, New York Senator Liz Krueger and Congresswoman Pamela Hunter introduced the Sex Trade Survivors Justice and Equality Act. It is based off the equality model or the Nordic model, which would repeal the crime of selling sex, but the act of buying sex, sex trafficking, and brothel owning would continue to be illegal. Senator Kroger's statement, we must empower and support people currently or formerly in the sex trade while addressing the violence, exploitation, and trauma inherent in the buying and selling of sex by continuing to hold pimps, brothel owners, and sex buyers accountable for the harms they cause. She added that discussions with survivors and the examination of data surrounding the issue have led her to believe that this bill is the best way to achieve these goals. Hunter also added, it is time we put an end to the exploitation of the disadvantaged and confront these issues directly. This bill aims to give and get sex workers help instead of jail sentences, in part by preventing arrests of people working in illicit massage parlors when there's evidence of exploitation. It also prevents people working in the sex trade from being charged with promoting prostitution when they're helping others in the trade and aren't profiting from it. Part of the bills involves extending the legal protections and services given to minors arrested for prostitution under New York's Safe Harbor Law to cover people up to age 24. It also calls for aligning New York's definition of human trafficking with the federal definition, which would broaden the pool of people allowed to access social services from organizations combating gender violence, as well as creating a regionally, racially, and sexually diverse state task force that would ensure access and administration of social services to people in prostitution across the state. The bill would also seek to prohibit the use of condoms as evidence in criminal trials for prostitution. Kruger told the New York Post she believes many of the people who enter the sex trade are young people of color who were coerced into selling themselves or do it out of economic desperation. She said many of the young people she'd spoken to felt like they've been thrown away and nobody cares if they spend their life in a form of slavery. In addition to providing sex workers with access to social services and legal protections, the bill would also clear criminal records of crimes committed while trafficking survivors were still under the control of people exploiting them. It would also expunge all previous charges involving prostitution and loitering for the purpose of prostitution. This bill is seen as a controversial one because it goes up directly against the call for prostitution to be completely decriminalized. It also competes with a 2019 legislation from Senator Julia Salazar and Congressman Richard Gottfried, who introduced a bill that was aimed at legalizing sex work so that those participating in it can do so freely without fear of arrest, either for themselves or for those paying for those services. The concern about decriminalizing sex work, continuing to punish those who purchase sex, is that it could push the industry further underground and make it even less safe than it currently is. Same thing in Canada. They have the same thing in Canada to where basically the buyer, it's illegal for the buyer, legal for the seller, and people still don't want to screen. People don't want to screen because it is illegal for the client to see a sex worker. They have tweets <laughs> on this article that I'm on. They have tweets where people tweeted basically against the bill. Top Dom tweeted, Full decriminalization of sex work would still leave anti-trafficking laws in place. The equality model is hysteria and does not actually help anyone. What is the point of being a legal sex worker if I can't screen my clients to make sure they don't kill me? Support sex workers? Ha! 
At Rational Blonde tweeted, The demand doesn't go away. The equality model promotes anonymity, which means sex workers drive prices lower, do riskier work, work more with pimps to promote themselves more, put themselves more in harm's way. It also makes it harder to find victims of abuse and trafficking. Emily D. Warfield tweets, I'm a survivor and sex trafficking research assistant and the data does not support this. There's no data linking full decrim to an increase in trafficking and violence. In fact, it's the opposite. You're conflating legalization with full decriminalization. And to add to this as well, I did a episode probably maybe November where I looked at an article that the ACLU did where they talked about the full decriminalization of sex work. Is that the way to go? And they looked at different sex work policy around the world and they looked at the Canada one where the in-demand model, the Nordic model, the equality model, the same thing that they're putting forth in the same New York uh, legislature to where it still harms sex workers. The only, the really the only and best way path forward is full decriminalization from the ACLU, from a lot of different organizations. And basically this bill goes directly against that, but you know, they see it as a step in the right direction, but we will see what happens. It's not a law yet. It's just a bill. I will keep you updated on its progress. Before we get out of here, I wanted to talk about Margot St. James. She was a sex worker and one of the nation's most prominent sex worker rights activists. She passed away January 13th at the age of 83. She basically dedicated her entire life to the decriminalization of full-service sex work. In 1973, she founded COYOTE, which stands for Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, to press for health care, legal rights, and financial security for sex workers. She sought to reframe prostitution as a profession with a legitimate workplace and human rights issues rather than something sinful. The term sex worker was coined in the 1980s by Carol Lee, but Margot St. James was one of the people that made sex worker, she popularized it. She organized an annual Hooker's Ball, a fundraising event that celebrated sex workers for Coyote. At its height in 1978, they had 20,000 people that would attend the Hooker's Ball. Amazing. She was based in San Francisco, but she helped the sex worker rights movement grow nationally. After Coyote, sister groups started to spring up. You have Pony, Prostitutes of New York, Hire, Hooking is Real Employment, which is out of Atlanta. You have Puma, Prostitutes Union of Massachusetts. In the 1980s, she moved to Europe and partnered with other groups to mobilize an international rights movement. In 1985, she organized the First World Horse Congress in Amsterdam and a second one in 1986 in Brussels, which led to the World Charter for Prostitutes' Rights. She returned to the U.S. in the 90s and was appointed to San Francisco's Task Force on Prostitution. She ran for a seat on San Francisco's Board of Directors and was narrowly defeated. In 1999, she was one of the founding members of the St. James Infirmary, a free health clinic run by and for sex workers in San Francisco, one of the first of its kind. It's truly incredible to think, like, yeah, I hadn't heard of her before last year, and this person has had such a huge impact on the sex work rights movement and still today, I uh, like I said, when I was doing this, uh, like looking stuff up about this episode, looking stuff up about Margot, I found an interview from 1985 where she's talking about the decriminalization of sex work, reclaiming the word whore, the correlation between the gay movement, sex worker rights movement, 
why sex work should be decriminalized, the porn industry, and such a super interesting interview. So what I'm going to do at the end of this episode, basically, we're done. We're done here, you know. But uh, basically what I'm going to do, we're going to fucking play the outro music. And then at the end of the episode, I'm going to play that interview. And it's like 21 minutes. Fuck, give it a listen. Such a good interview. Oh, yeah. I also have to say, on this interview, it's uh, the... The people that I guess own the rights to this, uh, Pacifica Radio Archives. They licensed it out to me. I was trying to figure out a way to put this interview on the podcast, but you can basically only stream the interview online. So I called Pacifica Radio Archives, talked to a dude, Sean. Shout out to Sean for hooking it up. And uh, he was able to send me a copy of this interview. So I'm able to play it for you today, but all I got to do is say, Hey, Pacifica radio, <laughs> Pacifica radio archives. I'll actually put a link to this actual interview in the show notes. So you can check it out if you want to. It's like 21 minutes, um, interview with Margot St. James from March 28th, 1985. Super excited for y'all to hear this. I appreciate y'all being here today. If you enjoy the show, like, subscribe. If you could write us a review, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We will be back next week. I have an interview for you. Who's it going to be? I'm not telling. I will put it on Twitter, though. (laughs) But I appreciate you being here today. I'm going to stop talking. I will see y'all next week. I hope you enjoy this uh, interview with Margot St. James. Shout out to her. I'm probably, who knows if this podcast would be happening without her, if we would be where we are uh, with sex work without her. So shout out to her. Fucking, yeah. I appreciate y'all being here. I'll see y'all next week. Later. Full service. Here's to the defeat of the self-righteous. I'm sitting in the Algonquin bar with uh, Margot St. James. It's against the law to serve a whore a drink in most states. Well, the respectable Algonquin has just violated that law by serving a drink to one of the most famous whores in the world. I, I knew of you first as the realest nun, weren't you? Um, and then I lost track until, as a, as a feminist, I knew your work in Coyote. Could you fill in those several gaps? <laughs> well, I uh, actually didn't know Paul when I became the realist nun, but I sent him a photograph of myself with, uh, in a habit that Dick Gregory had scored for me. I was a prostitute at the time, and I wanted to see what it was like to be looked at in the opposite way, and so I scored a habit and walked around and went to movies and took Paul to the airport, and we did a few things. But before I actually met him, I had sent him the picture of myself in the nun's habit with three young naked women at my feet, and I was reading realities to them. Uh, it was done as a Christmas card, a joke. And, uh, and then later I wrote a few columns as the realist nun. And then later he moved to San Francisco and we did become fast friends and are today still friends. And he just published uh, an article of mine that I'd written in 73 in his new book, um, The Realist, uh, whatever it called, they called it. Um, it was a short piece entitled Prostitutes as Political Prisoners. When did you begin to perceive political ramifications in 
your work? Actually, uh, I quit hooking in, in my late 20s when I realized that the men who I was accommodating and called my friends, my clients, were, when they stepped outside my door, by their silence, my enemies. And I decided I could no longer accommodate the hypocrites. However, I did not begin to address the issue publicly until many years later, 11 years later exactly, about in 73 when I formed uh, uh, Coyote. Which is call off your old tired ethics and was, I think, the first uh, modern day attempt in this country to organize prostitutes. Um, how extensive an organization is Coyote, just to get that picture clear? Well, I have a network all around the world now, and, and uh, we've had several hookers conventions here in the States, one in D.C. in 76, which actually was the third one, and several in San Francisco, the last one being last year during the Democratic Convention. And then just this uh, February, I produced the first World Whores Congress in Amsterdam, and uh, intend to be doing that again next year. What do you see as the basic function of your work organizing prostitutes? Well, I'm educating the public and changing public opinion uh, and trying to inform people about the effect of the horse stigma and how it's attached to women and how it prevents the laws on rape and violence and abuse from being um, enforced by men because they run things because uh, the victim is the victim of abuse is always blamed and the whore because her work is deemed illegal even though the clients aren't by enforcement considered as illegal they're considered normal uh, so the whore is shamed and the victim of abuse is blamed hence uh, anyone who can uh, have the whore label attached to her whether she's actually commercializing on her sexuality or not is a legitimate victim how do you how do you see that in the context well let me step back do you consider that work basically feminist work absolutely i think the whores uh, in private anyway are the only emancipated women because they have the absolute exact uh, privilege as men to, to sleep with whom they please when they wish and uh, i think that they also do not have to uh, be good girls and do, uh, do not have to adhere to the rigid uh, lines of control set up to control women, in private anyway. In public, that's another matter. They have no voice and they're, they're considered criminal. But in their own environment and in my environment, certainly, it's an environment of no shame and uh, people who can understand it and dig it, love it, and stick around. And those who can't stand that kind of freedom split fast. Well, of course, the basic line to feminism is control of your own body and the ability to set your terms and, set, and control your destiny. And I think those three rights are lesbian rights, the right to have no men, uh, abortion rights, the right to have no children or a limited number of children, and uh, prostitutes' rights, which the right to uh, do neither of the uh, four above mentioned, but charge for the activity 
and uh, profit from it. Uh, in this country, pornography was decriminalized in 69 by our Supreme Court, ironically, 69. And I thought naively at that time, well, prostitutes' rights can't be far behind. But I realize now that under Nixon, it was a conscious decision to keep money out of the women's community and the black community, which he perceives as a national security threat, to keep the activity itself illegal so that the blacks and poor women and white women could not capitalize on their sexuality, but that the porn pimps could. So really, to me, pornography, legitimized pornography, is a decriminalization of pimping for white men in this society. But the act itself has not been legitimized for women, in, uh, adult women even, in private. I know that that's a tenet of yours in any case, and that you said it before the anti-porn movement got the strength that it got, but it's also true that at the moment pornography is very much on both of our minds, having just come from yet another, another discussion about pornography. Um, so I would, as long as we're both thinking about it anyway, can you embroider a little bit on your analysis of the place of the pornography issue in feminism? I think it's a mistake to be attaching so much importance to it, uh, or you know, thinking that it's the reason for the stigma. The stigma is there because, uh, because of the one, I think, the prohibition on prostitutes' rights and the violation daily of their civil and human rights in this country. Without, by the way, much ado by the ACLU, who. Uh, 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 seem to go along with the argument that the whore's speech is not protected because it's commercial. And so on one hand, they're saying, well, it's work, and they admit it, but they're keeping it illegal work. And uh, so it's really, they're having their cake and eating it, too. It's available, but on their terms, not our terms. And so we don't have the right to keep the money. We don't have the right to say yes to the money or no to the rape in this instance. So that the porn can be as violent or as nasty or as cruel as the, the publisher deems suitable for his profits. But uh, we can't do anything sensitive or, or uh, accommodating in private with another adult. That, I think, is institutionalized hypocrisy in this, in this country and separating pornography from prostitution. I think it's all prostitution. It's all the sex industry. Separating it like this country did was a tremendous disfavor to women, which reinforced the horse stigma and yet let men capitalize on that horse stigma and even sell Madonnas as whores. If you look at the Playboy, they use the girl next door. And Playboy and the rest of them, I don't know about the rest of them, but Playboy, Hugh Hefner particularly, will not hire a prostitute or an ex-prostitute as a bunny, will not hire a prostitute or let her be a fold-out or a model in his magazine. So he discriminates against the whore, and he only wants the Madonnas as his models. So he sells them as whores, however, because they're perceived that. They've taken the clothes off for strangers. And that, in conventional wisdom, any woman that does that is considered a prostitute. But isn't that also just an economic thing in that what he's really getting then is, is so to speak, virgin whores, which, which, as I understand it, always had a little bit extra in the price tag. It's their first, since they weren't whores until they appeared there, then it's their first time, which is, has an extra little... You're absolutely right. Uh, I'm glad you're so clear thinking. <laughs> That, yes, he is peddling virgin whores, and uh, uh, to me, 
when when Dworkin says criticizes the ACLU or Ms. Magazine for that matter for taking money from Hugh Hefner, who has been legitimized and he is legal, uh, and what he's doing is legal, then uh, when she criticizes the other of us who are fighting for free speech and so on for taking the money that was made off women, she's keeping that money dirty and keeping the women dirty. So she's reinforcing the whore stigma by her, her attitude and her continued insistence that we are all victims, you know, and saying that we are all powerless and children are as powerless as women. That was a quote of hers tonight. To me, that really rubs the wrong way because that is the victimization is what the police seize upon to justify the continued abuse and continued prohibition. So it's a very dangerous, dangerous thing that she is doing, saying that we're such victims and so powerless because I feel that that uh, we have to to empower ourselves, not have everybody, uh, good girls like her, come and rescue us and reform us. I mean, that's really what I see happening there. So for her to, uh, to um, well, for instance, at the convention last weekend where Kitty McKinnon spoke and the, deferred her questions to a couple of victims, professional victims, I call them, in the audience, who told more horror stories after she had just enumerated several herself. It's the same tactics as the, the anti-abortion people who use jars of fetuses and so on to, uh, to, raise, to make the issue inflamed and emotional and beyond any possible rational thinking. And this is the same, the same danger I see with her approach to uh, attacking pornography. She's attacking a product which is an illustration and a barometer of the hostility in this country and in this society, yet she doesn't talk about the stigma which keeps the laws that are on the books to protect people from rape and abuse from being enforced. Some of the words that she uses are appropriate, like trafficking. I mean, it's a little exaggerated because who knows, they're, they're trafficking pictures, but uh, still. Um, and again, I think that's dangerous. Her, she's based in theory. I think I have my feet in the reality of things. And uh, I feel that if, if the good girls can come over to the bad girls' side, then we'll be powerful if we stand shoulder to shoulder. But she doesn't seem to want that. Um, she's used the word whore in a negative way. Pornography portrays women as whores by nature. I, uh, that burns me up because we're trying to reclaim that word uh, like the lesbians have reclaimed the word dyke. And uh, I think that she should be sensitive to that. As a Jew, she should be sensitive to what discrimination and stigma is all about. But I don't see that sensitivity. Uh, it worries me. I want to know what, in real concrete terms, you see the non-working women in the women's movement doing what we could do that would be standing shoulder to shoulder with, with, um, now you see, with the bad girls. Well, I've, uh, historically, the two groups that have been sexually stigmatized and criminalized through the ages have been homosexuals and prostitutes. So uh, I found an immediate alliance with, uh, with lesbians, even if they weren't prostitutes. But I know many lesbians who are prostitutes and can't tell their lesbian friends that they are prostitutes because they'll be put down for having sex with men. And I think that's too bad. So I think lesbians need to have their consciousness raised. Some lesbians, anyway, need to have their consciousness raised so that they will support the pro their prostitute sisters. Most 
women that I do work with are, are lesbian. Who, they have been the troops of the prostitutes' rights movement in this country. But there are uh, many lesbian prostitutes who complain that they can't come out of there in a double closet. Uh, I feel that, that the uh, homosexual men have ignored this, this issue of prostitution, maybe because they aren't arrested as much as the women. Uh, and unless they dress as women, then they're abused even more. Uh, I, uh, I suspect it may be just part of the whole sexist uh, um, nature of our society, where men have a lot more freedom, and especially sexual freedom, than women do. But uh, I see a lot of sincere men in the audience in these panels and in the discussion tonight. And um, I would hope that, that somehow we could make them aware that the horse stigma is what has to be attacked, not the pornography, not the, 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 uh, not the abuse itself, but the stigma that keeps the laws from stopping the abuse. There was a point in the women's movement when there was, there was beginning to be profound separation between lesbians and heterosexual women where Many of us felt that the appropriate way for all feminists to kneel with the loaded word dyke was for all of us to adopt it. Um, and and I, I just wonder if, if, that is, if that has an analogy for you, too. I, yeah, I think it does. I think that that worked. That strategy worked. And I would like to see more women use the bad girl term or the whore as a word to describe power and strength of character. For instance, in Amsterdam, we put on a hooker's ball, and I had the support of the lesbian and feminist community there because they're not sidetracked on the porn issue. And uh, they weren't quite sure that how they felt about prostitutes, right? But they jumped in, and we worked shoulder to shoulder with them. And, and afterwards, they wanted to talk, well, just how do we fit in? But one of the things that they did to show solidarity with the prostitutes was that as, when they came to the hooker's ball, many of them dressed as prostitutes or as their stereotypical image of a prostitute. And many of the prostitutes, of course, dressed very square. And uh, it was interesting that some prostitutes from the district were there, and they said, where are all the prostitutes? <laughs> I want to see more prostitutes. And they just didn't recognize their sisters. But uh, I feel that, that we need to um, have more than just a pin, more than just a word, but actions and talking and discussions about uh, what, what does it mean being a bad girl or a good girl is uh, choosing and dis dis setting your terms sexually, whether it be for money or love or, or uh, excitement. Uh, uh, should be anybody's business but your own? No, I don't think so. If the government is interested in getting a tax, I think we have to talk about a system that won't continue to stigmatize prostitute women. That uh, I'm against registration and even against mandatory health checks for prostitutes because where in hell do they get the VD from the customer? So let's license the customers who aren't stigmatized and let the government collect the tax from the consumer and check them for VD. And we can also keep a record of whether or not they're violent. So we can call an 800 number before we turn a trick. They charge it on the credit card. Anyway, I think it would be a simple thing with today's technology to provide a safe working uh, condition for the women in the industry. Are you actually serious about licensing the customers? Are, do you actually propose a system whereby, I mean, whereby men would have to buy hunting licenses? Hunting licenses. 
That's right. And I think it was not, it was my idea, but, uh, and I haven't sold it to everybody. The women are afraid that if we have a tax attached to the customer that he'll not come so often, but. Uh, I, I, just, I want to know how you meant that. Just like it sounded. You consider that the tax would have an inhibitory effect on the, on the customer coming so often, but I think that, that uh, without the middlemen that we have today running the businesses under euphemisms of escorts and massage and the customer paying through the nose, I think it would be much fairer to everybody. The quality of the service would go up. The women would keep an optimum amount of the money, and, uh, and the customer would... Uh, and the prostitute would both be much better served, and the, certainly the community would be better served if we were allowed to work off the street. Uh, certainly the, the uh, children would be served because they wouldn't be uh, uh, recruited into prostitution since the adults are taking care of the business and not being removed by the cops. One of the things that I find so discouraging in this country is with the prohibition and with the hypocrisy around pornography and what that means. Uh, we have a parallel system of prostituting women and licensing them as escorts throughout this country, registering them and giving them a license, if they're an amateur only, to be an escort, to be a prostitute. And uh, if they're caught soliciting or asking for the money and providing a sexual service, then of course they're removed from the business. But that doesn't mean they're really removed from the business. It just means they can't work in a safe way and they have to work in a clandestine way and be subject to all kinds of exploitation and abuse from those who would choose to do so. So I think that, that we have to get past, uh, get rid of the prohibition in order to address the problem of the stigma, which is actually uh, at the root of the abuse and the lack of enforcement of laws supposed to protect people from those kinds of crimes. What else have you done for a living in your life, first of all? Oddly enough, we have a similar parallel. I w I've been a domestic worker. I've been a barmaid. I've thought about being a cabbie uh, if I actually had to get a job. And uh, of course, I was a prostitute for a number of years, and I am a housekeeper for a guy with a wheelchair at this time, and that's how I support my efforts to uh, and political efforts and so on. Where would you put hooking in, in the spectrum of jobs that are generally available, mostly to working class women? It's be that's the best paying job going. It may be the toughest work, certainly the most risky and most dangerous. Uh, um, uh, you're liable to end up with a, a, an official record, which will keep you out of any other kind of employment and keep you in the prostitute game much longer than you ordinarily would have chosen. Uh, but considering the lack of options uh, for young and unskilled women, uh, oftentimes, you know, rubbing on men's private parts in a massage parlor doesn't seem quite as humiliating as uh, typing for a lowly uh, wage and being chased around the desk at night by the boss.